Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Fashion has long been the signifier of class and race in the United States. The late fashion designer Andre Leon Talley once said the following to The Guardian. I'm a descendant of enslaved people, and this is always in my mind. Whatever I articulate must in some way reflect who I am as a black man and what I can impart to the history of fashion as this black person who is able to be in the front row. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we revisit our March episode about our relationship with fashion. Later in the show, we talk about how fast fashion is changing the industry, from how we buy clothing to the environmental impact of expendable clothes. But first, the rich history of Black fashion and its enduring influence on our culture. This spring, I spoke with Dr. Tanisha C. Ford, professor of history at the Graduate Center CUNY. She's author of Dressed in Dreams, a Black Girl's Love Letter to Fashion. Her book shares her deeply personal stories with style growing up, and it also investigates Black fashion's role and appropriation in mainstream culture. I asked Dr. Ford what inspired her to tell her story. You know, I have to be honest. I never intended to tell my story. (laughs) You know, I think I'm a fiercely private person by nature. But when I was approached to write this book, I said, clothing is a powerful way to tell stories about who we are as a nation, who we are as a a people, as Black people, as Black women. So I thought, "I'm, I'm always saying this. So maybe I should actually put my own self on the line and tell my story that in order to really express to people the power of getting dressed, I had to put my own story out there. And I thought that it would be creative or innovative to think about different eras of my life through garments. And that would also be a way to tell a longer history of American fashion using the clothing that I and so many of my friends wore. What I think is is amazing about this book is that it is your story. It's very much your personal experience, but your personal experience connects and resonates with so many people in powerful ways. And one of the things that you say in the book is our garments are archives of memories, individual and collective, material and emotional that tell these rich textured stories of our lives. What does it mean to you that clothing, that fashion, that those pieces can make you feel different things. One of the things I had to do when writing this book was to sit in my own virtual closet, if you will, right? And see that closet space as a portal to take me back into time. And I noticed that I theorized that, right? I theorized that clothes make us feel things um, and they tell these rich stories about our lives. They are archives of our lives. But it wasn't until I actually had to, as a writer, sit with myself. And so many things came spilling out. When I think about my mother and 
just the so many memories attached to her garments. There's a chapter in the book called Leather Jacket. And I think about like my memories of her in that jacket, how the jacket smelled, that, that new leather smell mixed with her Chanel perfume and her cocoa butter lotion. And those are real memories for me. And it's important to express those memories and to give those memories to the audience, not only so that they could connect to them, but so that they could understand the stakes of clothing and accessories and hairstyling for Black folks, right? Like these are part of our, our rituals, our traditions that really make up who we are individually and as a collective. So it's, it's, it's deeply entwined with that emotional piece. And that's why appropriation hurts. Right. It's because it's not just about the clothing. It's about the memories, the rituals, all the things that our big mamas told us that we should and shouldn't do when we're getting dressed or styling our hair. All those things are are textured and become a part of the garments that we wear. And so I wanted to be able to explain those two things. But in order to explain something more abstract like appropriation, you have to start with the emotional. I think of of music in the way that you think of fashion, that I can mark time or mark a moment or mark an experience through my connection to that. And so the connections that you reference in your book about those experiences, those memories, those painful moments, as well as those those moments of joy and awakening, is there a particular garment or accessory that you have that first memory of connection to say, fashion is never just fashion for us? You know, I think so many of the garments in the book do that for me, but I think that the one, the chapter that was the hardest to write was probably the chapter about baggy jeans. And because that came at such a challenging time in my adolescence, so on the one hand, you know, this it's the rise of of hip hop fashion. It's the golden age of hip hop, you know, and everybody has a, a fashion line. We have boo cross colors, uh, used, damaged, like all these clothes that we love to wear. And these oversized jeans are definitely a part of that. At the same time, though, I was leaving my community and going away to a prestigious East Coast boarding school where dressing in that way was not the norm there. And it wasn't the ideal dress. And it seemed to me, especially from my very urban Midwestern Indiana lens, that everybody there dressed so preppy and J. Crew and you know, other designer wears that felt so out of touch with who I was. And so it was like this culture shock. And all I knew were these baggy, bright jeans. You know, how do I adjust and adapt to this place? So going there it was really a painful place to, to revisit those, you know, that year at that school and what the clothing meant for me there and how the same garments read completely different in a different cultural, social, and sartorial ecosystem than it does in the one that you're from. So it, it was no shocker then that I formed alliances with other Black kids from urban centers who looked more like me, who were dressing more like me, you know? And so then you start to see the thing where all the Black kids sit together in the cafeteria, right? Because we're trying to build an established community with one another. 
And our clothing became the marker that you're my people, right? You feel like home to me. Clothing are these markers of identity, markers of space, and often markers of belonging in really complex ways, but also mundane ways that can shape how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in community. And so you mentioned what it was like to move from your Midwestern town to go to this New England boarding school. And before we talk about that experience and and how you navigated and in many ways redefined what it meant to be in that space, you know, I want to take a step back. I lived in the Midwest for five years. The Midwest is never thought of as a fashion capital in the U.S. Although if you've ever been to Detroit or Chicago, you know fashion is top notch there. But you've talked about, you know, the relationship to fashion in your town and realizing that was not the image or the connection that you wanted. And you refer to your hometown as a Dickies town. What does that mean? Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, there's no place like it, you know, but also there are many places like it. You know, it's, it's the quintessential middle American city. And like many of those cities, it is a factory town, or at least it was in the height of industrialization. You know, you have the railroads coming through there. You have various factories and plants. And so you have an influx of Black Southern migrants and white migrants from Appalachia coming to places like Fort Wayne, Indiana. So they're built on these factories. That's where the bulk of the people found work. And that continued to be the case in my early childhood. So you have this a place that's very much regimented around factory life. And you have to be consistent. You have to push a button, pull a lever all day. You know, those it's ordered and organized in that way. And it's also the city of churches. So there's a strong Christian element as well. So it's a conservative place, to say the least. And it wasn't a place where I felt like I could fully flourish creatively. Black kids were, by and large, raised to just join that factory assembly line. So to want to do something beyond that was considered transgressive, right? Made you different or odd, you know? But for me, I had parents who were the oddballs of their generation. So my mom wearing her dashikis and her zebra printed garments that she designed and made, it made her a standout in that space. So I was kind of following in the tradition of these very oddball parents in a conformist town, and I just couldn't wait to get out. So Going to boarding school, while that was socially challenging, it was freedom in many ways, freedom from this factory town and the limitations I I felt even as a young Black girl in that space. As I listen to you talk about the freedom of that, the freedom to define yourself for yourself, the freedom to be uh, loose from the, the limited expectations and visions that other people have. I want us to go back to the chapter you mentioned, baggy jeans, because even seeing coming to that New England boarding school as freedom from the limits of your hometown, you then come up against a new set of limits and challenges. In that chapter, you wrote, Black boys were allowed to be loud and bombastic. Their version of Black cool was accepted. They could be hip hop with their baggy jeans and wheat Timberland boots and cornrows and still be thought of as smart and athletic. Tanisha, how did you navigate that space as a young Black girl who was seeking the freedom from 
the limits in your hometown, but now facing a new set of pressures to conform to a standard that was not your own. I must say, I love hearing you read my words. That was something that I couldn't articulate at the time, but it was definitely something that I felt, right? Where you see Black boys, like my older cousin, who also went to school there, uh, who was a legend. And so by the time I got there, I had big shoes to fill. But of course, I felt like I could never fill those shoes because as a Black girl, I would never have the freedoms that he would have there. So for me, it was like feeling undesired that the way I presented myself didn't fit into a space that was organized around a white feminine beauty. So to be able to have your hair straight and neatly pulled back into a bun or hop out of the shower and run to class with your hair still wet. Those are the everyday freedoms that Black girls don't necessarily have with their their hair. And trying to figure out how do you style your hair when you're away from your, your home beautician? Like that's a big deal. That's a weight that other folks did not have to think about. So what I found is that we had to create community quietly in the spaces of our dorm rooms to sit and talk and talk about things like, you know, romantic feelings or challenges with studies or challenges with family members who might be battling drug addiction or folks back home who need money or somebody in the family who's ill. And maybe you are one failed scholarship away from having to go home, right? Where is the safe space that you can talk about those things? And what I remembered in order to to really bring up those memories so that I could write them with a a vividness was sitting in my friend Kelly's room, who was actually from Chicago, so she could relate to being a Midwestern Black girl, and the smell of her vanilla Glade plugins. Still to this day, that scent is comforting to me because Kelly's dorm room was a place of refuge. She was a year ahead of me. And so she had already been through the ropes, you know, of that first year adapting. So her room was a space of refuge and that just that vanilla Glade plug-in. That's what I remember. I'm listening to you talk about your experience and I'm connecting to the idea that we often raise this when we talk about college students and how in choosing where people will go, there are all of these things that they have to consider. How will I take care of my hair? Where do I go to have a quiet space of affirmation? How do I find a partner in a space that doesn't seem very welcoming to people who look like me? And that means that in your memoir, you're not just talking about fashion and its sort of personal experience, but there are layers and connections to to race, to gender identity, to socioeconomic status, and making it clear that it's not enough to just drop diverse folks into a space. There are all of these other connections that matter there. How do you see things like class and socioeconomic identity connecting to the role of fashion and how it plays out in our lives? That is such a great point about how we can't just take people from communities and just drop them in environments without adequate support. I mean, you really summed it up. And I know that as a social scientist, you you definitely understand this. And that is a point that I wanted to make clear that African-Americans have been historically barred from everyday social freedoms. 
everyday civil rights. We, the, the so-called American dream has never applied to us. Our families couldn't get home loans to buy houses. It wasn't guaranteed that we'd ever be able to own a car, to get an auto loan to own a car. We were redlined into particular neighborhoods. Our schools have historically been underfunded. You know, so there are all of these structural and systemic inequalities that then play out in terms of our, our fashion life, right? So oftentimes we are creating our own fashion economies and ecosystems where we can gain the kind of freedom, autonomy, self-expression, perhaps economic advancement that we're looking for. So I wanted to recognize and, and make visible these invisible oppressive systems while also celebrating the ingenuity of Black folks, that even in this space where we have been given the stick and never the carrot, we have built and created. And out of that, we have really redefined the American fashion landscape. So one of the spaces that I, I enter in order to tackle this is the HBCU space historically black colleges and universities, where you see black, first of all, you see the diversity of black life, because of course the world would like us to think that we're a monolith, right? But you, you step on any HBCU campus and you see the range of blackness, okay? And you see folks, particularly where in school where I was at in Atlanta, where you see people who are, you know, straight, queer, trans, cis, you know, non-binary, you see a full range of, of gender identity, sexual identity, the full class spectrum. And the clothes reflect that. You had your, you know, Afrocentric pro-Black folks with their kente cloths and mud prints and mud cloths. You had the bourgeois folks in their suits, you had, and, and pea coats. You know, you had your, your hip hop folks, you had the ghetto fabulous style with the stiletto nails and, and long weaves and multiple colors and the, the folks with the piercings and tattoos. I mean, it was the whole range. You get to see black creativity on display. And that was so, it was like salve for me to be in that space and to see my people like this, to look around a campus and just to only see people who look like me. And I, I wanted to bring that experience to readers who perhaps had never experienced that. That's Tanisha Seaford, professor of history and author of Dressed in Dreams, a Black girl's love letter to fashion. When we return, we hear the rest of my conversation from this March. We tackle the issues of how Black fashion came to be commodified by mainstream culture. And we honor the late fashion giant, Andre Leon Talley. Talley passed away in January. And later, a look at the fast fashion industry. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we're listening back to an earlier episode about fashion, from what we choose to wear and how we wear it. Later, we'll discuss how fast fashion impacts our shopping habits and the environment. But now the rest of my conversation with Professor Tanisha C. Ford. She's author of Dressed in Dreams, a Black girl's love letter to fashion. For more than three decades, elements of Black culture have increasingly become part of mainstream culture. But much of that growth only comes when Black practices and traditions are appropriated and legitimized by others. I asked Ford how we celebrate the growth of Black fashion in our culture while still holding the industry accountable to Black creators. It is definitely true that Black women in particular become the style plate that everyone takes from without ever getting credit or creating a pipeline for those folks to enter into the mainstream fashion space. So for me, I wanted to link that emotional piece, right, the emotions that are tied to getting dressed and, and what we wear, with the fact that fashion is big business. This is a global capitalist enterprise. Someone's making money off the backs of Black women, Black queer folks, and taking our ideas making money off of them while then also pathologizing us as people who are poor, who are derelicts, who don't know fashion. We're fashion backward. We don't, we don't have enough refined taste to even participate in high fashion. You know, luxury designers, oh, we never made our garments for you. And then the other sad and troubling part about this is that in order to protect us, some of our elders have even adopted this language of like, we have to be respectable. We have to be upstanding in order to, you know, walk into these rooms on our feet, not on our knees, you know? So pull your pants up, young man, grow your hair out, girl. Why are you looking so butch? You know, you need to come in looking like the model black person in order to be taken seriously, in order to stay safe. So I wanted to explore why does that burden fall on us? Young Black kids, why does that burden fall on us? When we're simply trying to figure out who we are in this world, how to maneuver in this world, how to stay safe, how to stay alive. So to me, I wanted to, to sit with that. And, and I came up with this theory that looks at how there's this cycle of pleasure, violence, and innovation. And you can start from any part in that cycle that you want to. But say if we start with pleasure, the pleasure of getting dressed, 
right? Well, looking at yourself in the mirror when you've put together a banging ensemble, right? You're feeling really good about yourself. You go into school and your, your teacher tells you that that doesn't look appropriate on you. And what they really mean is that because your body is thick and curvy, you don't look the same as your white counterpart. So therefore we need to send you home because you're not fitting the school dress code, right? So that's a that's kind of, of, of social violence, right? But out of that violence too comes innovation where we continue to do more. So, oh, you're not, I can't wear this. Okay, great. Well, then I'll come back to school with purple box braids. You know, I will come back to school with rhinestone fingernails. I will take these shorts that you hated and I will bedazzle them all the way out. I will be even more, more excess, right? Even bigger. And so I wanted to talk about how those things then play out on the body this cycle of pleasure, violence, innovation, how we play that out time and time again, more stolen from us, we innovate more. And, and to me, that became a way to, again, humanize this conversation around appropriation, that is not so quote unquote, just about the clothes. It's about all of the politics and all of the experiences that are attached That policing of Black women's bodies, of Black women's fashion choices, isn't just an old problem. You know, we hear it right now as people are criticizing a women's basketball coach for what she chose to wear in honor of breast cancer awareness and of saying, is that professional? As opposed to saying, maybe if we stop making these judgments about women's bodies and fashion choices, we can really focus on those things that are within our purview. And one of the ways that I think we combat some of that is by telling our stories on multiple stages across multiple platforms. And so, you know, your book that has bridged this gap between academic understanding and pop, pop culture awareness has now been picked up to be co-produced as a TV series by Gabrielle Union and Frida Pinto. What does it mean for you to see that your book is going to touch even more people? Your story will touch and involve even more people to produce some of the changes that you see as necessary. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, that is such a joy. I'm so thrilled about that because again, like I mentioned, this was a book I never, ever intended to write. I never intended to write this book. I never intended to be so personal and telling a story about clothes in the, the late 20th and early 21st century, right? But the fact that my vulnerability created a space for visual storytellers to say, this is the kind of story we need in the world. This is what we need on television, right? We need people to see this. That meant the world to me. But it was also rather disorienting, you know, because when these people contact you, it's not like the email address is like their name, you know? So it might it might be their assistant. And it just so happens that one of the assistants had a name that I was like, that's not a real name. Who's trolling me saying, oh, you know, we want to meet with you about this book. I'm like, what? And then when Frida herself reached out to me again, the email address, it wasn't like it said Frida Pinto at gmail.com. Right. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, wait a minute, what is this? So it took me a while, a while to even realize that they were actually trying to reach out to me about developing this thing into a scripted series. And then to be on the call with Gabrielle and Frida and their producers, 
that was surreal as well, you know, to hear them talk about their vision for this project and, you know, to know that we were, we would assemble a team of Black women writers and producers to bring this thing to life. I mean, it was just talk about dressed in dreams. Like that was a dream that I never, ever even imagined. I, I couldn't have dreamed something that big. So it's really been a pleasure to work with them and uh, to get to learn something about that side of the creative business, you know, to see how shows are made, how they go from a book to, you know, an adaptation to hopefully something that's developed into a pilot. Well, we are going to name and claim that dream into reality because and being vulnerable enough to share your dreams, even when you didn't know they were your dreams, you then liberate others to pursue theirs. And so as we we close our time together, I wanted you to reflect on someone whose legacy is outsized in so many ways and the ways in which his very presence helped little brown girls and little brown boys pursue their own dreams. And that is Andre Leon Talley, who we lost recently. When you reflect on his work, you reflect on his legacy in the fashion industry. What does that legacy mean to you? Andre Leon Talley, mm, now having a place among the ancestors. Andre Leon Talley was so many things. And you see how many things he was into so many peoples in the ways that people are writing about him. And I think he perplexes us because he doesn't fit neatly into any one box. He couldn't be boxed. As a Black queer man from the Jim Crow South, he broke so many barriers and exceeded so many expectations more than anybody ever would have imagined. He too was a big dreamer. And we also see the price that he had to pay, the wounds of being the first, being the only that he amassed, you know, from walking in all those rooms, the, the racist and homophobic epithets, the isolation, the creative stagnation because of the fact that people couldn't see him being something beyond even a creative director, how he's been marginalized in the history of mainstream fashion, how he lost his home. You know, a lot of the friends he thought were friends or I claimed as friends turned their backs on him. But even in those things, I don't want us to see him as a tragic figure, right? Because I feel like Painting Black people as tragic figures is a tool of white supremacy. And so I think that there's a way that we can honor him by honoring all of his complexities, but without seeing him as a, a tragic tale, a cautionary tale, you know, but saying, let's make space for this elder and what he's done for us as a people and also the, all the lessons that he's given us. So he's somebody that I think that we will continue to study and see anew and afresh for generations to come because he's just such a rich figure to draw from. I'm looking forward to an Andre Leon Talley biography. <laughs> you know, we have his memoirs, but to, to have someone else really do a deep dive into his life is, is really great. I, I would encourage everybody to read Hilton All's piece in The New Yorker. It's a profile of Talley that's now available online. Fair Jasmine Griffin sent it to me and I'm so glad she did because it is just sumptuous, you know, like just the way he writes about Tally. So 
an icon, an icon for sure. Dr. Tanisha C. Ford is professor of history at the Graduate Center CUNY and author of Dressed in Dreams, a Black Girl's Love Letter to Fashion. Tanisha, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To find more information on Tanisha Ford's new book, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. After the break, fast fashion's outsized impact on our environment. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Although many traditional fashion companies have struggled during the pandemic, fast fashion brands like Zara, H&M, and Shein are thriving. That's due in part to the ways that fast fashion sources, sells, and markets its products to customers. But even though fast fashion is a hit, especially among younger people, critics say it's having a negative impact on our environment. I talked about these concerns with the fast fashion industry with Dr. Shang Lu. He's Associate Professor of Fashion and Apparel Studies at the University of Delaware. His research focuses on the fast fashion industry. I asked Dr. Lu what makes fast fashion different from the traditional fashion industry. So how about let me start with the traditional fashion model. So we know that, you know, for fashion, you know, consumers always want to see the trendy items. And actually, these trendy items are forecasted by professionals. So we call it fashion forecasting. So in a traditional model, fashion companies first will try to predict you know, what consumers may like. You know, it sounds pretty crazy. Maybe like a six, six months ahead of the selling season, company will start to order the products. They will start to arrange the shipping, arrange the production. And then, you know, maybe six months later, the product will finally arrive at the selling floor. But you can imagine so many things can happen within six months. So the result is a lot of products eventually will be unsold. So this is the traditional fashion model. The result is many products are unsold or they have to be very deeply discounted. So the so-called fast fashion model, they try to change the way of thinking. Instead of try to, you know, try to predict what consumers may like because it's, it's really a challenging job to do. So some companies like Zara and HM, they say, okay, how about I just try to follow the trend? Okay, I will just you know, pay a lot of attention to analyzing the market data and I can very quickly identify the trend. Okay, so based on very quickly identifying the market trends and based on more, you know, much more frequent replenishment. So they can always keep their products fresh. And also they try to you know, minimize the market risk. So this is the so-called fast fashion model. So several indicators you can you know, really pay attention to. One is the replenishment rate. So for the traditional fashion model, um, and, I, and I would say very few or much fewer products will be eventually replenished. Why? You know, because they don't have the capacity to do so. You know, even if I know this product is selling well, but I don't have you know, the very close factories Know, to help me to do the replenishment, but fast fashion model can do that. And also, you know, because I always carry the very fresh items in the store, I don't really have to rely on deep discount. So the kind of the percentage of products sold at a discounted price is much fewer for fast fashion retailers. So these are the two very distinct features for the fast fashion model. 
It's fascinating because there's so many layers to what appears in the stores, when it appears in the stores. But one thing that we've seen over the last two years of this pandemic is that a lot of the retailers that we thought were traditional stalwarts, I'm thinking here of Brooks Brothers and and Lord and Taylor, Neiman Marcus, we never thought that they would disappear as being the key pieces in the fashion industry. But these changes and trends that you've mentioned have meant that it shifted. But it also sounds like, Dr. Liu, that now consumers have a bigger voice. It's actually the fashion industry having to chase or keep up with consumer demand in a very different way. Do you see that happening or does the fashion industry still have the power? Exactly. This is exactly the case. So we call fashion a buyer-driven industry. So it's very different from, say, airline industry, like Boeing's, like you know, Airbus. They just launched, you know, launch a new model to the market, and then airlines will buy these products. But the fashion industry is very different. You know, always, you know, fashion brands and retailers really want to offer the products consumer want. But the tricky part is, how do I know what consumer exactly want, right? So companies are trying many different ways to try to understand consumers. You know, from the traditional method, say, you know, you know let's just launch more retail store. You know, instead of having to sell my products to wholesalers because you know, we add an additional layer, this means I probably wouldn't have the direct information, the direct response from consumers. But how about I just you know, launch more retail store myself? Then from observing you know, what's selling well, what's not, then I can you know, more easily understand you know, the market trend. And then you know, I think these days, companies are really paying a lot of attention to the so-called data science, you know, try to leverage data to gain more insights into consumers' thinking. You know, their social media, you know, through all these apps, you know, these apps often, you know, gather data for our consumers. So companies can more, you know, easily, you know, see the, the evolving trend and then try to launch the products that can be, you know, um, of great interest to consumers. Let's talk about that relationship and and the data that we generate as consumers just based on our browsing patterns. These fast fashion companies have really made great use of social media, not only by hiring influencers who can wear a design and then get lots of other people to think that's the thing that I need to do or the place where I need to shop, but it also allows them to advertise very quickly across multiple platforms. You can drop a picture on Instagram or video and TikTok. How has social media allowed the fast fashion industry to have an advantage over more traditional fashion? Yeah, that's also a very good question. You know, this is still a evolving business model. Okay, don't forget, I think, you know, there are a lot of you know, new things coming up, but also, you know, new innovations are still going on. No, so for fast fashion model, you know, because, you know, for example, they try to identify what's going on, you know, in the market and also based on their supply chain, they can more easily, you know, to fulfill the market needs. So for the traditional, you know, you know, fashion company, they really need to overcome two bottlenecks. One is to really understand, you know, what consumer need. And then, you know, do I have the capability to really make these products available to consumers. I think that the later part actually is also a very big challenge for traditional fashion brands and retailers. Now, say for a typical you know, department store, on average, based on my study, they may source from you know, 30 to 40 different countries working with 500 or 600 different vendors. 
it is such a sophisticated network. So you can imagine, you know, by leveraging or by using these network, you know, sometimes it can be, you know, really time consuming to make any changes. You know, say I just realized, you know, my pattern is no longer, you know, popular in the market, but how can I fix that problem? How can I fix that mistake? But fast fashion model based on their more nimble supply chain, they can make it happen, but it's not that easy for a traditional fashion company. The question that always comes to mind when I hear about fast fashion, how quickly it can respond, the ability to be nimble and to adjust, I always wonder about quality. Are the things that we're able to have quick access to at such a lower price point, are we getting quality items and how these companies think about that? And one of the companies that always comes up in this conversation was Shein, which has really had exponential growth in this area. As of last May, according to this data point, Shein accounted for 28% of all fast fashion sales in the U.S. What is it about this company that has made it so dominant in this space? Talking about Xi'an, I definitely agree with you that it is such a big attention these days. I noticed that from my students, you know, most of them are Generation Z, but very interesting. I find kind of there are two camps. Some, you know, some of my students really love Xi'an because, you know, they say they can really find many trendy items, but also offered at a very, very competitive price. But also another camp of students, they say, you know, they're really concerned about the environmental impact of Xi'an. They kind of really worry that Xi'an creates some kind of culture that is not that sustainable or healthy for the environment or even for the industry itself. So I dig a little bit deeper into Xi'an's business model. Um, so sometimes we call it a ultra fast fashion model. And actually, I find you know, Xi'an's business practices somehow is very different from even the traditional fast fashion model. You no know, one is, you know, you no, know, like I mentioned earlier, for the traditional fast fashion model, they're very well known for, you know, keep launching relatively fresh items. So in 2021, last year, HM launched about 35K SKU products, stock keeping unit, which is the smallest unit to identify a specific product. Xi'an launched 1.5 million. 1.5 million. Xi'an is totally, totally different. Second, you no, know, like I mentioned earlier, for the traditional fast fashion model, they really pay a lot of attention to replenishment. So 55% of products sold by Zara actually are replenished at least once. However, for Xi'an, it's about 10, 10. Only 10% of Xi'an's products are replenished. So which give me an impression, Xi'an actually don't really care about replenishment. Okay, what they do is just keep throwing fresh, trendy new items to the market and at a very competitive price. Zara and HM actually they price their products much lower than many traditional fashion brands. But Xi'an, Xi'an prices products even 60 to 70 percentage lower than Zara and HM. And even more crazy, nearly 70% of products sold by Xi'an are sold at a discounted price. Just, just imagine yourself as a regular consumer. You see such a, you know, trending items at such a low competitive price, and also you can enjoy some discount, right? This really gives you a lot of incentives to purchase, but also maybe you are thinking about at which cost. Okay, do I get that product? Do I really have to, to be so serious about treating it well and wear you know, so many times? Probably I just wear one or two times and then, then just simply throw it away. And you know, the new items is 
no, it's there already, and I really like it. And it's not too, you know, pricey, not too expensive. Why not? So my concern is, should I create such kind of culture? Do I really want to, you know, keep it, you know, for long? Do I really want to wear it for many times? You know, if I really do not see the value, you know, at such a low, low price, I got it. Why have to treat it so seriously? So this is my concern. And that concern then is key because it means that there is a cost borne not just by the individual consumer, but really about all of us. Because this approach is creating greater fashion waste, which has all kinds of environmental concerns, as you mentioned. But even when the companies say, we're going to use more recycled materials in our manufacturing, or we're going to commit to renewable energy. And so that sounds great. But at the same time, what you're saying is that it is creating a culture and an experience where this waste, this fashion is seen as expendable. And even if you're using recycled materials, you're using more materials more often. And all of that has consequences. Do you think these kinds of changes by these companies will actually have the impact that they say that they want or do you continue to be concerned about the relationship between waste and our environment? You know, when we are talking about the environmental impact of the fashion industry, there are two major concerns. One is just like what you mentioned, we know we produce so many products. So this is one big part of the environmental concern for the fashion industry. The second part is the material itself. You now many material, you know, from the textiles to dyeing material we use, actually it's not too environmental friendly. And actually, you know, even for those fashion brands which says, okay, I'm trying to, you know, use more sustainable material, but still it is at the nascent stage. So on the one hand, you consume so many material, the, the energy, you know, the water to make products, but also it's very hard to kind of recycle them and to take care of them. And definitely a legitimate concern or a logical kind of thinking is, we probably should slow down the kind of slow down the pace. So the so-called slow fashion is a very hot topic in our academia these days. And Nushen somehow you know, does not contribute to any of these two concerns. So we are already concerned about so many products be produced, so many clothing are available in the market, but Xuan keeps throwing these new products to the market and it kind of give consumer an incentives to purchase even more, consume even faster. And a second, you no know, many Fashion brands and retailers, you know, despite of their, you know, the environmental concern for them, but they at least, they, you know, they start to use more so-called sustainable textile material in their product. But Xuan don't even bother to do so. If you, you know, checking much fewer products carried by Xuan, they say they, they're, you know, kind of using you know, anything that is environmental friendly. So if we really care about the environmental impact of the fashion industry, we probably really need to go back and think about whether you know, having a company like Xuan is something you know, really you know, should raise more concerns. There are many competing interests wrapped up into this industry, and in particular, this sector of fast fashion. And some people have said that the fast fashion industry is a race to the bottom. As we conclude our time together, I'm curious, do, do you think that this fast fashion will be around five to 10 years from now? Or do you think this is a moment in fashion that people are going to make the most of? 
No, to be honest, I personally do not necessarily against the so-called fast fashion model because somehow I do find, especially from a business or academic perspective, there are some benefits of adopting this model. Remember, in a traditional you no know, fashion you no know, fashion model, you no know, we you no know, we try to forecast what consumers want, but always we can make mistakes. So why not let's reduce such mistakes? So I think this is the best, you no know, kind of the benefits of fast fashion. You no know, minimize the mistake, you no know, try to really launch the products what consumers want. Second, you no know, definitely I think with the awareness of sustainability, fast fashion brands may realize you no know, my model also may have some side effect, and I really want to address them. That is, in, instead of trying to encourage more consumption. Maybe my model can also you know, boast and try to offer what products consumers want, but at the same time, you know, trying to educate consumers you know, about the environmental impact of making the products, of consuming the products. And also, you know, I have to really say this, I do not see company as a totally abstract concept. Companies are composed of people. And where are these professionals coming from? I, I think many of them coming from our students. So I really tell our students, you are the future. And also, and I have to say, you know, our students are genuinely care about sustainability. So personally, I'm very confident that gradually we will see, you know, this problem be solved. And also, this is the reality, you know, just looking at the market 10 years ago, much fewer products, well, you know, even care to mention they are, you know, related to sustainability, related to environmental production. But these days, no company can say, I do not care about these two words. And also, you know, these days, no consumers know increasingly aware of you know, under which condition my clothing is made, or they want more such information be released by companies. So a lot of companies actually, they are, you know, for the first time, start to release their detailed vendor information. So I think step by step, you know, this is a moving target, right? And a lot of competing interests. But, you know, I think, you know, if we set the same goal, I'm confident, and we can make it happen. Dr. Shin Lu is Associate Professor of Fashion and Apparel Studies at the University of Delaware. This episode of Disrupted originally aired in March, and it was produced by James Scoble-Wolf and Shekinah Collier. Disrupted is produced by Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang-Barnum, and Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to our interns, Anya Grindalski and Mira Raju. You can listen to all of our episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.